0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the
1: Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 270 and today on the show we're talking whitetail habitat management with Tom James, an Indiana hunter, land specialist, habitat consultant, and the inventor of the Furminator. All right folks, welcome to the Wired Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx and as I mentioned, today's guest is Tom James, and I'm going to say right off the top, I really, really enjoyed chatting with Tom. Tom is currently a whitetail properties land specialist, and he's a Habitat consultant, and he films and shares his hunts for an online show called The Management Advantage, and he also invented one of the most popular food plot implements of all time, kind of one of those all-in-one food plot implements called the Ferminator. But more than all of that, I think something that really comes through in our conversation is he's just a guy who really, really really loves deer and working on properties to improve wildlife habitat and hunting opportunities and his passion just oozes through every word he says and it's a lot of fun to be a part of not to mention of course the the expertise that he brings to bear too so as you guys likely know, you know I am personally fascinated by this kind of stuff habitat work and management and improvement But I'm also really into the absolute, completely opposite form of hunting, which is public land hunting and DIY trips across the country and that kind of thing. And I've been pretty fortunate to be able to have the ability to go and do both of these kinds of hunting just about every year. Um, And as much as I just enjoy that, I also firmly believe that this diversity in experiences, it's helped make me a better hunter. Uh, regardless of even just the actual hunting, I think just learning about these different styles of hunting and these different aspects of knowledge about deer and what deer need and what deer want and how deer use habitat and how deer, you know, or on the opposite side, how to find highly pressured deer on public land, how to set up on deer without being in a habitat, all of those different facets of this this thing that we love related to deer hunting it all helps. I think it all has, has helped make me a more well-rounded hunter. And I do think that these these diverse topics can help you, too, regardless of what style of hunting you do most. I think there's something to be learned from all of these things. Um, so in today's example, you know, with Tom, we dive into some really interesting things about, you know— how deer relate to timber, what deer need from cover, um, and and on the side of things, if it comes to, you know, if you actually want to own a small piece of ground someday or get a small lease someday, um, man, the topics we cover in this one are, are really, really, really relevant. Stuff like, you know, how to price out land, how to find land and determine how much it's worth, how to determine what you should actually try offering, what's a fair price. Uh, we get into some really interesting things about Old field-type habitat, what deer need from early successional habitat, how to improve fields, how to build cover out of nothing, um, how to manage timber, how to make money from timber. Um, and then, of course, you know, we talk food, too, which is something that we, we as white-tailed guys and girls usually like to talk about. So it's just um, – It was just a really enjoyable conversation, one of the better Habitat conversations that I've had in a long time, and uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So probably uh, without me rambling on any further about how much you're going to enjoy the show, we should probably just get to the show so you can enjoy it. So let's take a quick break, and then we'll chat with Tom James. All right, with me now on the line is Tom James. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hey, Mark. Glad to be with you today. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this chat.
2: I as well. I I, uh, I appreciate you reaching out to me. We're really busy right now with, with land activity, which is great. Uh, we're getting close to spring. So I had to make sure I blocked out some time for you because it's been a crazy few weeks for us here, but um, things are well in the land world right now.
1: Yeah, I guess that's a good problem to have uh, being, being so busy with things at this time. And uh, I'm glad that you were able to carve a little bit of time because for at least a year now, maybe longer than that, I've had you, I kind of keep a running list unbeknownst to people um maybe their ears their ears start ringing every once in a while because i'm thinking about them or or typing up their name but i have this running list of folks that i think would be really interesting to talk to on the podcast and you've been on the list for at least a year um finally made the uh reached out to you and made it happen so i i found i can't remember when i first you came on my radar at first but you you popped up with a big flashing red light for me maybe a year and a half ago or so when my colleague Spencer interviewed you for one of our short little Whitetail Properties segments that we run most episodes. And um, in just like a minute-long segment, I just thought what you had to say was was so compelling and interesting. I was like, this is a guy I want to pick his brain in more detail about how you approach – Managing properties, hunting whitetails, managing whitetails—all that kind of stuff that we love to do—it seems like you've got just a wealth of experience, and and kind of selfishly, very relevant experience to me because I'm down in southern Michigan, and you are in central Indiana, right?
2: Correct, yes, sir. Yeah,
1: so we're kind of in the same kind of neck of the woods, and uh, I'm 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 interested to see how you're doing these things. So. Correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm missing anything here, Tom. But you are a Whitetail Properties land specialist. You do habitat consulting work. Uh, you film uh, for the management advantage, and you also invented the Furminator. Uh, how do you have time to do anything else with all these different projects you've been up to?
2: <laughs> Good question. I guess I'm just wired that way. I'm I'm a restless sort of a person. So if I'm sitting around and nothing's happening, most people would call that uh, a positive. You know, being able to relax and just chill for a little bit, but that's never been me. I, I'm just a, a, a go-getter, uh, constantly motivated, and I feel there's a self-worth issue with me. It sounds funny, but some people may struggle with that too. If I'm not being productive and, and feeling like I'm creating something, I I sort of start getting down on myself. I've always been that way.
1: Yeah, I get that. So So can you give us the the Cliff Notes version of how you got to this point. Um like how you got involved with things here on the not just the hunting side of things, but how you transformed your love for hunting into, you know, what seems to be now a thriving career?
2: Yeah, and it's all really been just sort of by default. You know, I didn't really seek out any of this. It just fell in place as time progressed by. One opportunity led to another, to another. And you know, I look at that as sort of I don't think anything happens for by accident, I should say, everything happens for a reason in people's lives, good and bad. And um, I you know, I don't wanna bore you with too long of the story, but going back to, I was um, uh, a young boy, my folks moved out to the current area that I live in in rural Hancock County, Indiana, which is nothing but really corn fields and soybean fields and patchwoods and ditches. But it was a whole new world exposed to me as a young boy that was you know, fifth grade, moving from near east side Indianapolis in a suburban neighborhood out to wide open fields and little woodlots and my mom would just open the door and let me you know back in this was back in the 70s where things aren't as well, they may have been but it didn't didn't seem like um people were as as worried about what would happened to their children as you are now and i would be just going days at a, not days hours at a time every day during the summer and then after school and before school I picked up small game hunting, rabbit hunting, squirrel hunting. My dad gave me my first, excuse me, 22 rifle when I was a pretty young boy because he, uh, he trusted me and respected me. um, And I I was real careful and I proved myself to him. Um, So I was constantly roaming. I think one of the things that really segued me into being a true outdoorsman was the ability to run a trap line. Uh, As a young boy, I was wading creeks and setting conibear traps for muskrats and, and eventually worked my way up to catching mink and raccoons. And then eventually, as I got a little bit older, learned how to catch. Now, this is back in the day, Mark, when we didn't have coyotes. <laughs> I'm dating myself a little bit, but <laughs> red fox was uh, was the prime predatory target around here. And and a good red fox in those days, back when the fur market was really booming, was worth 60 to $70. So oh. that was uh, pretty cool. You know, and muskrats were 8 to $10 a piece. And here I was, a sixth, seventh, eighth grade boy, running traps in the morning on a Honda three-wheeler. That was back before the three-wheelers were um, considered dangerous. And I'd get up in the dark and go run traps. And then again in the afternoon when I got out of school. So that really just solidified my my passion just to be out there all the time, you know, between small game hunting and trapping. But it wasn't until I got into college, I went to Purdue and I started in pre, uh, um, actually started in pre-veterinary medicine school. But uh, just take, basically taking prerequisites. But when I found out how difficult that school is to even have a shot at, I decided to change my majors to wildlife biology, wildlife management. And there's another addition to that story a little bit later. But um, I I met some really neat guys there at school and and uh, obviously guys from all over the country and all over the Midwest and was able to, through some relationships, um, be introduced to, I guess, be introduced. I, I was actually given an opportunity to turkey hunt on some some ground uh, in southern Indiana where turkeys weren't anywhere you know near me here at the time in central Indiana, and um, I, I drove and did some turkey hunts and drove up to uh, northern Indiana to some buddies that I went you know went to Purdue with and were experiencing different aspects of uh, learning to bow hunt. This is going to crack you up, but I uh, I couldn't afford a, a bow, so um, my girlfriend's brother at the time let me borrow an old Indian bow Indian brand name bow. I'm not even sure. Wow. I mean, it was just probably like a 40, 45 pound kind of resembled a smaller version of the white tail hunter, the white tail from bear archery uh-huh. and, uh, three aluminum arrows of different shaft sizes and lengths and <laughs> <laughs> different color fletchings. And I was shooting with the finger tab and, and, um, that's, that's what the, my buddy had laying around, you know, as a spare. And I shot it and I got pretty proficient with it. And, um, the very first, this was, uh, in rural Northeast, Northwest, uh, suburbia of Indianapolis, Carmel area, Hamilton County. Okay. Yeah. And there were some woodlots up in there that held some deer and, um, which none were around my home where I lived, but it was interesting to drive the back roads in the evening and see some deer out in the field feeding. And my girlfriend's brother had some connections and one thing led to another. We got permission on a couple of those little farms and, uh one morning we walked in this particular day and i'm holding that indian bow in one hand and clutching the three arrows with wasp 125 grain broadheads in loosely in my other hand and walked in the dark and found a a tree that i could climb and straddle a, a limb basically legs dangling off of a limb about 20 feet up in the air and found a branch overhead that i could rest two of the three arrows on and knocked an arrow <laughs> Uh, as as luck would have it, an hour or two later, uh, a young year-and-a-half-old six-point buck made the mistake of coming within bow range of me, and I shot my very first deer, and that kind of a scenario without a stand, without a wow. release, without a quiver, uh unorthodox equipment, but absolutely hooked me 100% from that moment in deer hunting, so that that, that was just, everything is just a building block. You know, one thing led to another led to another. I continued to trap all through college and, uh, eventually, um, made some other relationships. My, uh, my, my wife was, a a, a dear friend from high school. Um, but we had gone our separate ways and I was off to college, but I came home from my, my cousin's wedding and, Saw Laura, who would soon be my wife, but we that was the night we sort of reclicked and started going out again. Um, but right before we got married, <clears throat> uh, one of her best friends from school was related to some folks that live out in west central Indiana. And um, she had told me a couple times about they've got this really awesome farm and they've got deer and turkeys. And, of course, you know how guys are, like, perking up and listening. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, Hey, can you make an introduction to uh-huh. me <laughs> for me on that? And uh, actually, that's how it happened when I really first got exposed to just incredible deer hunting um, properties and habitat was that, that connection. And back when a handshake and a, it's just good permission was, was granted to you through being somebody that they, they, they sat down and interviewed me, kind of. I went to their farm and stood around in the shop with these 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 men and their father and Uh, I'm embarrassed to say, but looking back, I was here. This was early nineties and I I had a mullet. I drove my wife's car out there (laughs) and they're probably, you know, these farmers looking at this young punk and, but they were kind enough to give me an opportunity. And I never, I never um, took that for granted. I wrote them letters every Christmas and took them gifts and thanked them because it was really important and special to me. It meant a lot. And um, those were the years I really made leaps and bounds in my my hunting success and understanding of reading deer sign and understanding properties and layout and topography and how bucks, you know, that's, we're talking over a a, a 20 year period of that. Yeah. But um, as I got to a point where I felt finally felt like I could afford something um, maybe not hundred percent by myself, but I, I just had that itch. I had to, I had to be able to call something my own Um, I even tried to buy one of the farm fields that the the small farm that I primarily hunted those farmers and they, they politely told me they didn't have any interest in selling it, but I had to try. Yeah. And, um, I watched the newspaper every Sunday in the classifieds and would open it up as soon as it arrived and, and run through there and look and see if I could find anything out in that County. That's really where I wanted to target. And one day there was a little, I mean, I bet you well, I can probably recite the ad. It said fifty-seven point four eight acres, deer and turkey galore, one-acre pond, possible contract. And And wow. uh, man, and the price was a thousand dollars an acre. <laughs> price is right. Now, now was uh, that a good price at the time? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it was e- even. It sounds low at the time, but you know, prices now are twenty-five hundred to three thousand dollars easy in the same yeah. county. And um, I think the average then was fifteen to eighteen hundred dollars. So it was par- it was priced below average, and they they were anxious to get it sold. But I called the I called the guy, and it was a Sunday morning, and I apologized for bothering him on Sunday, and I said, "Can I please look at this today?" And he gave me directions, and I drove out there, and then I called him. I was coming off the hill, and there was a couple other guys walking up. You know, to look at it too. And that's just like, oh my gosh, I got to do something now. These guys are going to sweep it out from under me. Right. And yeah. So I called him back and I, I said, is there any way that I can get this off the market today? And he agreed to meet me in Indianapolis. And I, I wrote him an earnest check of a thousand bucks to get it off the market, to get it pending. And um, I actually ended up buying that property with a really close personal friend of mine. And he trusted me 100%. I called him on the way home and he said, Tom, if you like it, if it's as good as you say it is, let's do it. And we we bought it together. Wow.
1: So that scenario that you're talking about right there, you see this little spot, you fall in love with it right away. You feel like this this pressure of other people going to snatch it up. I, I got to believe that happens to a lot of people. I, I can feel it happening to me. Um, yeah. is, there, is there a risk though with that? Because I've always tried to like, so, well, I guess let me take a step back. I personally am exploring a similar scenario as you laid out there. I've for a long time wanted to try to buy a, a small little piece to try to, you know, just to dabble in this kind of thing, experience it finally. You know, we've we've had Dan Perez on the show and different folks who've talked over and over about how you can get a small property at a decent rate, find ways to earn some additional income off of it and slowly build it up and someday flip it and then buy a little bit bigger property and you can kind of work your way up the ladder. Um, right. So that's always been like a dream for a long time of mine. Now I'm finally wondering, like, maybe, I could, maybe I could try it. So, I'm, I'm starting to explore some things right now. So, all these things we're going to be talking about here are, you know, selfishly, I'm hoping it's going to help me through this process if it happens. (laughs) I hope it Um, will. Yeah. And so, so I can already see, like, going out and stepping on, stepping on a property, it's so easy to, to fall in love with it and be like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. I can envision hanging a stand here and hanging a food or putting a food plot here and I bet you I could access right here. Um, I'm already seeing how easy it is to, to get stuck on something and then yeah. never look at anything else or become so attached to it that you're not able to look at the potential downsides or things like that. So I'm trying to like find a way to keep myself mentally in check and not fall into that temptation, but I, it's
2: probably losing battle. <laughs> so I, I hear you exactly. Go ahead and I, and finish with your question because I've already got some <laughs> pre preformed responses for you.
1: <laughs> Perfect. So basically I just, I'm just kind of curious, like, what do you think about that? How should someone be thinking about that? Sounds like you, it kind of worked out for you, but maybe it could have been a dangerous thing to fall in love with it so quickly for other people. Is that true? Is that a concern?
2: It is. It is true. I, I've seen both sides of the coin, though. I've seen properties that were just incredible. And, you know, I see a lot of properties every day, as you can imagine. And I've taken guys on properties that I would die for if I were in their shoes. And they just are, they're so. Selective and um, laissez faire about it that they you know oh, I'll think about it and I'll talk it over, and you know i I completely agree with don't force it don't don't um, uh, create a sense of urgency if there isn't one, um, take your time, think it through, look at plenty of properties, don't just settle on the very first thing that you see. however, I think there's something completely intuitive within a person if you're on a on a property and it just absolutely speaks to you and you feel a sense of, my gosh, this just feels right. And it feels like home to me. And, you know, there might be a few negatives that you can look at and can you overcome those or can you, can you contradict those negatives or improve them and turn them around? Um, yeah, it's great for a guy to have a sort of a checklist to go through when looking at a piece. Does it have good access? Does it have Um, some potential openings? Even if it doesn't have food plot openings, can I make some? Does it have any open ground? What is the surrounding pressure like? Is it in a good county that produces trophy deer or uh, better than average? So there's a list of questions that are important to you as a hunter, as a landowner, that I would formulate and and force yourself to go down through that list. Because sometimes you get infatuated and you just, ah, the the heck with the list, you know, I'm ready. Um, But then, then you could you could end up with some regrets. And the second side of that, though, is I, um, when it speaks to you and you feel right and the price is right, the price is within what the market is, is substantiating for you with some research, hopefully you've checked into that. I'd say, man, I've seen guys that just are so, so cautious and so, so afraid to make that jump that they've actually let some really good things and opportunities pass them by. So, there is a certainly a balance in there, and hopefully some of those things that I've made comment about the list and the details um i If I may add this, I probably think the number one aspect or detail about a property that can make a great property horrible or a moderate property incredibly good is your surrounding hunting environment of your adjacent landowners a lot of us we're talking small parcels here you know and and a bad neighbor or a couple bad neighbors can make your life miserable and make you wish you'd never done it. Yeah. Now there's always the opportunity to influence those guys for the better, and, um, and you know impact them through management and you sharing your success and trying to teach your friends and or your neighbors. However, there are just some that they're just this way and they're never going to change. And um, you know you sometimes you don't know that until you get into the situation. And and it's a little bit awkward when you're checking on uh, trying to find out information about neighbors and how they hunt. And, but hopefully you've got a buddy or a contact or an agent that's representing you. Well, Um, you know, as a whitetail properties agent, we try to find that out for our buyers, because if there's a tree stand on every side of the property, 10 feet off the line facing in, I'm going to tell you, you know, and maybe, and maybe that's a scenario that you can, that you can remedy or or mediate but sometimes you can't um but that that's probably in the midwest especially in some more uh, more of the populated areas of the of the not too far of a drive out of town that's what you're going to find um but when you find one that has no pressure no hunting uh, evidence around you maybe you hear through the grapevine that this landowner next door doesn't allow hunting at all that's just an I mean that's a goldmine when you yeah. can find those kind of situations. I actually, Mark, I I just defaulted into a great a great scenario. Um, I have an adjacent landowner that has a huge parcel next door to me, and they don't um, they don't take on they, they just let a couple people hunt and they've been that way all through the time that I've owned. So I, I've ended up with a really good low pressure scenario next door to me, and I just man, I can't count my lucky stars every time I go out there because it could have been completely the, you know, 180 degrees opposite.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great that it worked out that way. And I do think that I have heard so many people talk about the importance of that, of that neighborhood. And, and to your point though, it does seem tricky. Like how do you, like do you just knock on a bunch of people's doors and and say, Hey, I'm thinking about buying this farm. Uh, can you, can you tell me what you're doing back here? Um, yeah,
2: right. It's an awkward deal. Uh,
1: yeah. But I guess it's something that maybe is, is worth doing in a lot of scenarios. Um, you mentioned one thing that I, I would be curious about your opinion on, which was, you know, seeing if the price of the farm was within, within what the market should be in that area. How would you recommend going about, you know, pricing out a farm, determining like what's the fair cost per acre, et cetera, for a given piece? Cause I feel like if you're not within that world of real estate or understanding what kind of, you know, tillable land versus non-tillable land costs, all those things. Like I haven't found a great resource that I can like look to that says, okay, in this county, this is what it should be going for in this county, et cetera. Is there anything out there or yeah. any way of doing this?
2: I'm glad you asked me that. The old way for us, even as agents, was we we would have to just go to the county courthouse and go to the recorder's office, you know, and just be polite to the ladies there and and gentlemen, but ask if you can um, search into some of the recent, recently sold properties and um, they, they can help you out. Um, if they're really busy, sometimes that's not the highest thing on a priority list, but that was the way to go to go about asking for some reasons. Can you show me um, any woods 50 acres or larger in the last six months or the last couple months that have sold? And you, you can get in there in a database and find some stuff that way. Um, recent sales are just what we call comparables, you know, something that's in the same county, maybe even the same township, if you can, with a, a similar uh, composition of habitat types. Remember, tillable land and timber tracts can vary greatly in, in their um, price from one county to the next, um, even one region of a county based on soil productivity and, say, for example, in the woods, your timber value, mm-hmm. if you've got a well-stocked marketable stand of timber, it could be a hundred, a $1, thousand dollars more than than a, a track down the road that just got average or below average. But um, the resource I'm going to tell you about that we've just recently been introduced to within the last year is AcreValue.com, okay. and it's it is a website that you can go on and and sign up a membership. I think it's wow. I'm I'm afraid if I I want to say it's less than a hundred dollars a year. Okay, um, I may be wrong there, but it's been a while since I've signed up, so I've, I've, I've forgotten. But anyway, you can dial down to the specific area that you're looking in, and you can click on either, um, click on a field, and it'll show you what its estimated value is based on many factors, moisture, uh, crop history, wow. uh, soil types, soil productivity, uh, it'll give you the NCCPI rating for a farm field, which might be next door to your woods that you're looking at, and that's like a standardized index for crop production that a one through a hundred I believe is the top end is a hundred uh maybe eighty not second guessing myself, but anyway, it'll tell you what the county average is, and you can see how that particular field uh compares to the to the county average but but also on there is a sold so you click on the sold column. And you back out and boom, you'll see all these ribbons show up with these prices and you just start clicking on farms Wow! and it'll show you, it'll go back several years all the way up to current and it'll show you recent sales in the area of what, what properties woods and tillable and combined have sold for. And it's a super great resource for us. And we can also click on download the report and you can, boom, you can hit it, send it to an email address and share it with your buddy. um, Take it to the bank. You know, there's a lot of ways you can utilize that database for your, for your benefit, um, I will tell you when you're clicking on a farm, and you see you see one down the road that's uh, you know just say it sold for um, one hundred sixty thousand dollars, and a comparable acreage right a couple streets over, a couple county roads over sold for three hundred and seventy five. Um, take a look at that because usually those larger farms they don't oftentimes break it down into uh, improvements of what structures are on there so. I would just really, if you see a high number or a really low number, probably toss those out because there's going to be a a, a farm shop or a home or something on there that has positively influenced the price. Or you may see one that was sold from a dad to his son that is is half price of what you would think it should be. So you just caution yourself to look at the lows and highs and and maybe sort of settle in an average of the middle ground. And and that'll, that'll get you guys really close
1: that's that's great great advice that's a really helpful resource It sounds like I'm definitely have to check that out um, yeah so so chat with the neighbors doing some research like this um what about when you're when you're walking a farm for the first time let's say it caught your eye online or maybe you're working with an agent or a specialist and they said hey here's what i think you should look at um i mean i've talked to a lot of people i've done a lot of this kind of thinking myself so i know there's some basic things you should be looking for and you kind of touched on a lot of these earlier you mentioned looking for possible places to plant food plots looking at the cover looking at possible access um are there any things kind of next level that people maybe overlook, or anything that you just think is so so important, it's worth drilling into a little further, as far as what to pay attention to when you're, you know, looking at it that first time, or, or doing sub, several walkthroughs trying to make a decision?
2: Right, that's a good question. Um, sort of a thirty thousand foot above thing. I would I would sort of base things on, or at least maybe take a look at it, but. Of course the record books are really good resources. You can look in, say if you my home state of Indiana, you can go into the Who's Your Record Book or the Boone and Crockett book and, and look at some counties that are that are notable in producing more. There's a reason for that, and that's nine times out of ten, it's because those those areas of the state have highly productive soils. Soils create growth for better plants which ultimately create bigger anthers. Everything's based on soil productivity in the end. So if you can just, if you have no idea where to start, that might be a starting point. Um, and then, and even dial that down, whittle that down a little farther to townships within the County that might be more productive. Um, when you're looking at properties in general, like listings or write-ups, of course, it's sad that the mom and pop real estate companies don't really show you anything other than one aerial photo. They don't really give you a lot of detail because just frankly, some of those folks just don't know what, what, a woods is different from a woods from a woods, you know, that's all the same to them. But, um, what, when we list properties and I know there's others that that try to mimic this too, but they, we, we're going to show every detail that we can that we feel is going to be important to a buyer, you know, water sources, where you park, um, is there a gate? How do you access, is there a trail system through it? Is there a pond for fishing or other, is there a good cabin spot or a place to put a camper? Is there power down at the road? Um, I think that those are sort of baseline generalized questions dialing down a little bit deeper. Um, we talked about the openings, but there's always a possibility of creating your own openings, which is what I did on my place. But, um, timber value is a big one. And if you don't know, um, what you're looking at and you don't know that the particular agent knows what timber values are, are currently and what this property may offer you, it's always a good idea to take, take somebody along, um, or, or have, a, you know, have somebody in your back pocket, a consulting forester that you can call on for advice, or, or maybe even take some photos of a, some of the trees that you're seeing that are larger, because there's there's several things to be said about timber values, and obviously it'll help you create some income over a perpetual period of time if you're managing your property as a long-term sustainable timber property. But there's also the the advantage of converting an older stand of woods into an ideal whitetail habitat, which luckily for us includes harvesting some timber. And those two go hand in hand. So if you see a big giant set of woods with large trees, um, a lot of people ooh and ah over that, but that's, that's the worst case scenario for a great whitetail deer habitat. But man, it could create some income for you immediately and then allow you to enjoy the process of converting woods into ideal scenario for whitetails that for food and cover. Um, but also responsibly, I mean, we do, you know, I I like to think about doing a harvest on my property every five to 10 years because I'm not, I'm not cutting too far down into the size base. That's, I've always got a new crop of, of marketable trees coming on in five to 10 years. Um, those are things to think about. I prevailing wind is a big one for me too. Uh, a lot of guys, um, have no choice but to be able to park on the West side of their woods you know, and, and here in central Indiana, 80% of the time we have a west, northwest, southwest wind. And if you're parking and entering your property from the same direction every time, um, the mature bucks know you're there before you ever even, you know, get close to the stand in my opinion. Yeah, um, yeah. And, I mean, that that's an overgeneralization, over but you know what I mean, uh, especially on a smaller piece. So wind direction and the ability to um, have several different possibilities or or choices for points of entry is really key to, to not pressuring these smaller parcels and, and, and having the best success and the most fun in hunting them.
0: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. For all things auto, do it yourself, and you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reillyauto.com slash meat eater. What was that
1: feeling like for you when you when you pulled the trigger on that first property, your fifty-seven acres? Uh tell me about that.
2: Um just, uh, it's just complete elation. You know, it's just like a dream come true. It's like winning the lottery. I don't know. I can't explain it in enough detail, but, um, it's just jumping up and down, walking outside of the, out of the closing company, you know, and high-fiving and man, it's finally happened. The very first, the very first, um, one that's really, truly going to be mine. And yeah, it's a feeling I'll never forget. And I may say this, you know, I'm 50, I'll be 53, in July, and that first piece we bought twenty three or twenty four years ago, I get the same feeling every time I open that gate and drive up there and park the truck and get out and just you know look around and man i can 't believe it this is mine, and there's just no no greater feeling in the world there really isn 't and unlike unlike some i I've, I never was really interested in um, flipping and turning and getting the next I always immediately felt like this feels so good and so right I just want to try to add to this right here if I can over time Yeah. and luckily I was able to do somewhat um, of a, a pretty decent addition just a few years ago but um, yeah there's no greater feeling man just uh, finally getting it done and signing the papers and getting handed the keys and the first day you go out there and the first step on it is just it's just it's indescribable.
1: Oh, I can't imagine. Um, and, you know, you you mentioned that uh, additional piece you got. I understand that you had a pretty nice scenario where a neighboring landowner was going to sell and it was kind of bordering you on two different sides. Can you tell me how that all came together? And, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I heard like it was a deal where you weren't sure you could afford it, but you thought it's kind of an opportunity that comes once in a lifetime. I got to find a way to make it happen. Like, how did that all come together?
2: That's a great question. That that story is just loaded with twists and turns and sleepless nights and, <laughs> and uh, feelings of despair. And I mean, you know, sometimes uh, a deal comes along that you can't afford not to, but you can't afford to do it either. It, <laughs> yeah. and, and I was trapped in one of those scenarios, um, not to get too deep into my personal um, financial situation, but I'll tell you guys that uh, when the market crashed in 07 and 08, I, I was still running a full-service, full-time landscaping company. I had invested heavily in the Ferminator Foo Plot implement, as you mentioned earlier, that we had just created. And we were really taking it and launching it to the next level. I just heavily invested in engineering and design and um, machining work and uh, stockpiling uh, product for manufacturing because we just released the, the Furminator generation three, the G three model. So man, we were just looking, looking at the uh, future with just wide eyes wide open. I say, we, my wife and my, my daughters and I, everything was looking great. And, uh, the, the industry received it. Well, all the, all the feedback that I got from clients was out, outstanding. Everybody was thrilled with the machine and then everything just went crashing down. Um, in, in a matter of days. And I say that because I was still running a, you know, a 20 something year old company that was, we, we did full service landscape design, installation and maintenance here in Indianapolis. And I uh, had a lot of big end clients that we did renewable contracts every year. And, and when you start relying on that, that's sort of like a, 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 just a cash flow. Obviously it was feeding my family and taking pay in our bills, but I was also financing and funding these, these site things with that. Um, I, I didn't have any investors. I did everything on our own. We didn't take any money from anybody. Well, you know, my dad here and there gave me five grand, 10 grand. I paid him back. And, but I'm talking like big, big money, you know. So um, when, when things dried up, uh, I, I I lost all my big accounts within a week. And a lot of the custom builders that I worked for were, didn't answer the phone the next day. And wow. we got left left to hang on a lot of payables that we never got. And I had a big... You know, I had a lot of employees that counted on me and and things got really, really tough. Um, And and to this day, I don't know that we've completely fully recovered, but we're close. So we went through a really long period of some just tough times um, rebuilding and trying to um, pay old debts down and make sure everybody, you know, just everybody deals with certain things on their own in different ways. And we we had a tough go about about it. And this opportunity surfaced somewhere in the middle of all that, you know, (laughs) and I knew I couldn't go take a, couldn't go get finance for it. There was no way. I mean, there was just absolutely no way. And I was trying to be really creative and, and look at, that's one thing that I've always, I've always felt like if there's a way there's a will, I can, I can put the two together and, and make something happen. And I worked really, really hard on that. And, um, I ended up, I remember I was driving down to, uh, I believe it was the National Wild Turkey Federation National Convention in Tennessee, and I called um, my my neighbor, and um, I had been dealing with her son-in-law, and I remember telling him, man, I, I can't believe I'm getting ready to say this, but I've tried everything I can think of, and there's just no way I can do it. I said, I've, I really, really, it, it sickens me to say that, and I, I don't know. I, I just, I've, I guess I've come to have a peace about letting it go, and uh, I really appreciate you letting me have this time to try to work out a, a way to make it happen, but it, God's got other plans, I guess, because I, I've, I've run into dead ends everywhere I've went, and I said the only, only way that I could even possibly do this is if you guys would consider giving me a. Uh, a short-term land contract. And, um, and I knew that wasn't their, their preference. They were trying to, uh, free up some capital for, uh, for, for family reasons. And, um, I just remember hanging up the phone and just taking a big side, like I just did there. And, and, and I funny Mark, because I actually felt pretty good after some, sometimes that the stress can really wear a guy out. And, and it had been on me on that deal. So I remember it felt kind of good to say that even though I was about to cry. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, as it would be, he called me back um, a week later and said, hey, we, we've talked about this. And there's nobody else that we would rather have this than you. And we're willing to work with you on a contract. Wow. And knock on wood, thank God, they, they, they did that. They did that with me. So um, I, I was able to acquire the adjoining 62 and a half acres.
1: That's amazing. And and that must yeah. have been a huge, huge new project and, and level of enjoyment to, to then kind of see your your property and the projects you've been working on kind of ripple out through this new area, right?
2: It did, yeah. And now um, now I had access to a lot of the ridges that I felt like the bucks were betting on. Um, I had access to a 17 acre interior crop field that I knew was a, uh, an evening destination field for all of whitetails. You know, my, my two, three plots up in the timber were basically just um, stopping points for the deer as they work their way down to the bottoms. And we had some great success with that. But now I had a destination field that we can do some fantastic things with. Uh, and it's funny that you say that because we've just now um, I'm ready to pull the trigger Starting next month, I'm converting that 17 acre field to all habitat, but it's still going to have some really large uh, cove food sources, food plot locations in the end. One's going to be uh, corn and bean rotational large egg, I say large. it's going to be three or four acres. and then an annual field on one end and then a, a clover buffer all the way around it, basically a road, warm season grass mix of big blue, Indian and switch um all through the sides and then a a center planting of late holding oak species late leaf holding oak species for a tree planting down the center of it um you know three thousand plus trees so i i'm really excited about that because it's going to just take this to the next level it's going to take a few years obviously for it to begin to take some effect but I say three years from now i 'm going to start seeing some pretty big results, Wow,
1: so can you walk me through why you 're doing that because right now you 've got a seventeen acre destination food source it sounds like that was pulling a lot of deer into this area what was the Why was that not ideal, and why is the new situation better um, it, it's
2: it's more food than they needed number one, um, that may sound crazy to some people. But I think in in my area where I'm at, the missing component is early successional, either old field type habitat or warm season grass fields, that that really big thicket, brushy edge. So I'm creating a thicket with my tree plantings in the middle. Yeah. Um. You know, they'll have rows between them of weeds and grasses, and and I will plant them in a cover crop of clovers and and short, sort of keep things at bay. To just to get the trees up and going, but my ideal scenario is to let that thing flush with tall grasses, uh, need need a waist high grasses and forbs, and then let as the trees begin to blow up and they'll they'll be in there holding leaves. I'm gonna I'm gonna mix in a, a decent component, uh, a small percentage. I shouldn't say large, but a, a small percentage of eastern red cedars d- dotted throughout that, just for a an evergreen component in there. Not too heavy, not too light. But I believe i'm gonna be adding and providing a new habitat type that is lacking yeah and uh and I really believe that I can hold um more mature bucks on the property with uh you know literally twelve to fifteen acres of just thick dense absolute nasty bedding cover with great foods right out you know um hundred yard step out of the out of the grass yeah that um that brushy old field habitat's hard to beat it is and I'm creating those uh, along with the warm season grasses. And the cool thing is the, the clover road is going to be um, 16 to 32 feet wide, uh, six, excuse me, 16 to 24 feet wide, all the way around the perimeter, all the way around the, the tree planting, and all the way around the crop. Where, where every edge touches, there will be a clover buffer road between it. And, um, you know, for me, that's access, but it's also a fire break. And it also doubles as a great food source. I'm going to have chicory and clover, perennial clovers in there combined. So when you add it all up, there's um, two and a half to three acres of clover just in the fire break all the way around the field. And not to mention, you'll have a four-acre ag field of standing crops. I'm going to leave the beans and corn stand every year. The the deer will finish them up. They won't be harvested. And a rotational uh, cove at the other end of the field, which will be uh, uh, annual greens and grains. Just to complement what I've got going up in the timber, by the way. So when you add it all up, there's going to be I have four up there now. We'll probably have about 12 acres uh, total in food. Wow. When you add up all the woodland plots, plus the fire breaks, plus what we're going to leave standing down in the bottoms.
1: And, and this area is primarily, outside of the, the, the food sources you've created, it's primarily, though, big timber. Is that right?
2: Big timber on the hills and large ag fields in the bottoms and on some of the tops. Okay. So you've just got these real good traditional breaks, you know, the – uh, and there may be several hundred contiguous acres of timber in certain stands. So it's definitely not your broken woodlot situation like I have over here in East Central Indiana. It's large, contiguous because it's all drainage related, you know, so you've got some good topography changes, flat bottoms, nice rolling ridge hillsides, and then some flat tops.
1: Yeah. So something you mentioned, this, uh, this thicket you're trying to create there in the middle of what's now a field you talked about planting some oaks you talked about putting in some little cedars this is something i've always wondered about because i've wondered you know if you buy a little chunk that's just a wide open crop field maybe and thought to try to convert that into deer habitat. Like what would be the right way when, for, to to, cry, to create cover from the ground up? Is it you know drilling in native grasses or warm season grasses and then that works up or something like what sounds like you're doing planting some trees. But are you, and I might have missed this because I know you mentioned I think you mentioned putting in some clover or something within there. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but what is there anything else you're doing? for the thicket part other than planting the trees or are you, are you, what else is going on there? Are you going to do anything to encourage certain types of forbs and native things to come back up or what's the strategy there?
2: I'm I'm really going to rely on the seed that's in the soil bank. And I, I think that's a pretty safe bet across much, much of the range here where we deal with in the Midwest. Um, I will say the reason I mentioned throwing some cover crop, I'll probably put some winter wheat and perennial clover in the rows in between the trees just for giving them a heads up advantage head start on getting a few years and uh, uh above comp- competing adjacent weeds and um you know other plants i think what i'm trying to accomplish there obviously it's a food source but i i want to suppress some weed growth until my trees can get several years of age on them and, gotcha. and You don't have to do that. I know of many, many successful tree plantings where all you do is throw them in the field. I say throw them, you plant them in the field in the rows, you go back occasionally with a herbicide and spray just along the trees, just in a band on either side of the tree and whatever happens in the middle happens. And um, I'm I'm prepared. I'm a little bit more of a, a maintenance freak. I don't have to have neat and tidy like I used to when I was younger. So I understand and appreciate that a dirty weedy thing is a good thing in many cases. Um, but I want to give those trees a head start to not have um, immediate competition with adjoining weeds that could canopy out and and shade them and rob sunlight and nutrients and moisture from them. But my my plan is, Mark, to basically slowly just let those clover buffer strips between the rows just just go back to native plants. Um, Now, of course, I'll keep an eye on that. I don't want multiflora rose and privet and, and, and... Japanese honeysuckle and things like that popping in. But if it's ragweed and brome sedge and grasses and things like that, I'm, you know, I'm all for it.
1: Yeah. So that's what I was kind of wondering about. So it sounds like there it's important to know, to kind of know your weeds, to know your native forage, and then to go in there and selectively select out certain things and apply herbicide to the bad stuff and then allow the good stuff to grow, right?
2: Yeah. That's much, much easier than trying to promote good things, Um, just let, let mother nature happen and you can spot and select. And if, even if you have a little bit more of a, uh, of a blanket competition than you anticipated, you can certainly, you know, throw a two four D on it to kill everything, but the grasses or, uh, you know, the other way around, or, or just do, if it's most cases, you'll find that it's, it's easy enough to ride the roads with a on your four wheeler or side by side with a a tank sprayer in the bed and just spot spray. And you can really, I mean, uh, one guy can cover a lot of, lot of ground and no time flat with that um i think it's worth mentioning in this time because there's obviously a lot of different trains of thought and a lot of attitudes about warm season grasses versus old field habitat a really good personal friend of mine and a dear friend and somebody i respect as much as anybody in this industry is dr craig harper and he talks a lot about just putting away the mower and let a field just be a field let it do what what it does and it's and it's the, uh, as good or better habitat than anything you could plant, including warm season grasses. And I agree with Craig on a lot of levels. And, and I just think that there's uh, <clears throat> the stands of warm season grasses that I've been able to grow here in Indiana. One of the things that Craig likes to point out is that if you lay out in a field of grasses that don't canopy out, you'll lay a, a buck up in July and August. He says it's extremely hot. And I, I can understand that. Um, and I've seen some poor plantings that haven't done as well, where you, the sun is beating the ground. Um, and maybe I've just been lucky and, and, and had some good soils to work with and some good successful plantings because, well, I've had some switchgrass Indian and big bluestem plantings that you've had to take your arms out in front of you and part it like you're walking through a curtain. Right. You know, and there's definitely shade on the ground, and they stand up extremely well through the wintertime. They're not laid over by a heavy snow. Um, the Craig's points are exactly that. He wants something that's going to provide some shade, and he wants something that's going to stand well in the wintertime. time. Um, so look at what works well in your area, um, or, or use a combination of both. I'm trying to accomplish both with my personal property planning, but I've had such good luck with some tall um, natives of the right subspecies, uh, cultivars of the species that that are that are worth investigating. I I think the world of Craig and I absolutely understand what he means. I I just know that if I could show him some of my fields and I'm, I'm not saying I'm better than anybody, but I've had some really good successful fields that I, that I would love to show um, him or anybody that wants to see where a a deer can, can bed out there all day long in the heat. And as the sun sets, I see him stand up and those antlers pop up out of that grass and start walking towards you. That's a cool feeling. Yeah.
1: But do you think, is there any kind of um, certain scenarios where one would be the better choice than the other like is is the let an old field be an old field the better just budget scenario and then the warm season grasses is the better scenario if you have got if you want to invest or is there any way to help someone make the choice of which to try first or which is the better option
2: great great question and yes um i would say for young guys just getting started and maybe you don't have the equipment or the the you know the deep pockets to buy let's face it, native warm season grasses can be expensive. You know, you're going to spend a couple hundred dollars possibly an acre um, in in those plantings and if you've got any, and honestly, there, this is another, probably a, a, a point where there will be differing opinions. It's really recommended to have no less than five acres of warm season grasses if you're going to do it at all because the, the whole idea is you're creating a sanctuary in a place where nobody goes. And But those small pieces that size are very effectively hunted by predators and coyotes and bobcats can walk the downwind side of a three acre or five acre planning and and know any fawn that's laying out there Know any you know so it's not going to quite give you that that size advantage of the dilution effect where they're they get lost in a sea of grass basically so far out there that your deer are safe because of the fact of just the entirety of the thing so um getting back to the point 100%. You know, just think about it. it native seeds don't cost you anything. They're laying out there right now. They just, need, they just need an encouragement. One of the easiest things to do, if you want to just try it for a year to see if it'll work for you, uh, most native forbs and weed seeds are suppressed by sod thickets of grass. And if you spray a fallow field in the, the waning days of summer into the early days of fall, all that herbicide is going to be taken down to the root by those grasses and killed. So now you start the spring off with a dead layer of grass, but the seed that's laying there viable, waiting for some sunlight and waiting for some water finally gets triggered and can grow. So all you've done is spent 20 bucks on some glyphosate to spray you know, a couple acres of ground and a little bit of time. And, and you'll be really, really surprised at what can happen by just letting something go on its own. And, you know, Hey, there's nothing wrong with give it a year and see what kind of component you have in there. Uh, um, Common ragweed is a, is actually a very highly nutritious plant that grows up in the first year. And it can be a really good four to five foot tall, shady, uh, broadleaf composition of a, of a fallow field. But if you walk out there in July or August and, it's bald knobs and open soil and very little this and very little that then you can maybe understand that either the seed bank is lacking or maybe you had also had an a, a indecent growing season not enough moisture maybe the soil nutrients are poor there but at least it'll tell you and give you an indication of what you might decide to do the following year
1: yeah now can you explain to me the rationale for the timing of your herbicide application. Why not, um, spray, you know, first thing in the spring when everything's just starting to grow again. So you could have a, a stand of, of new native vegetation that first fall.
2: Well, I I think the the idea that we're trying to get past is we want our, our forbs and and broad leaves to be dormant and, and going into dormancy are gone. So the tops are drying down but the uh, cool season grasses are very viable and and they are flushing excuse me they're sucking nutrients to the root and the difference between that and the springtime is actually is think about a tree like a maple tree the sap starts flowing up you you just get so much better of a of a herbicide intake if you're if you're catching that plant as it's trying to store nutrients going into dormancy, and uh, you're just going to get a so much more of an effective kill so um but the timing is critical because you don't want to spray. If you still what I mean, waning days of summer, fall, we want the, we want your broadleaf weeds and and forbs to be dried up and Brown and the grad, this could be November, by the way, depending on where you're at in the Midwest. Um, you know, our cool season, we're still mowing grass sometimes here in Indiana and before Thanksgiving, that, that you want to catch it at the very end of the growing season. When that grass is still green, it hasn't been frost killed or, um, Frost, let not say killed, but frost um, um, dormant, you know, gone dormant because of, a, of the cooling temperatures. A couple light frost won't do it. It's going to be a, more of a freeze that sets that button to where it tells the plant, okay, it's time to go go to sleep.
1: So, so man, this is this is all stuff that's very interesting to me right now as I'm thinking through different places I've been looking at, um, and and very helpful too because I think that you see a lot of properties where, um, to an untrained eye, which I would say when it comes to like identifying my my grasses and, and cool season grasses, warm season grasses, various forbs and weeds and different things like that, I'm not good at identifying those yet. To, to my mm-hmm. untrained eye, I can look at a place and I see scattered cedar trees and I see some nice, I see grasses laying down right now. And I'm thinking, oh man, I bet you this is great. All this grassy habitat and these scattered trees and everything. But it's probably some of those low quality grasses that you mentioned, some kind of, brome or whatever it is. That's very low quality. And and if right now it's all laid very flat to the ground, that's another indication. It's not the best stuff, right? Um, Correct. So there's ways that you can, as you just said with herbicide, I could probably improve that composition through a little bit of smart management versus just letting what's probably a non-native grass, probably what's in there right now anyways, right?
2: Well, it's probably a native grass if it's tall and has that, that wispy look like a, a very common, um, rough field grasses is broom sedge. That's really, really common. But we're talking about the carpet grasses, you know, like your tall fescues, which yeah. is uh, Kentucky 31, which is the stuff that the old cattle farmers used to plant everywhere. It has a broad green, uh, wide grass blade. That yes. If it comes up in your yard, it looks ugly. You see that clumpy grass out there. That That is a, that is a perennial grass and it's a sod forming, thicket forming grass that's yep. just out outcompete everything. So the taller grasses, um, even if it's a knee high, like a sedge or something in that family, those aren't necessarily, uh, they're, they're more than likely natives, but they're not necessarily a bad thing, but they make a good, very, very, uh, very importantly, they make a, a part, a component of what would be a good stand. Yeah. Um, so if those things are popping up here and there, they're, they're, they're just getting an opportunity to, to poke through some sunlight and trying to grow. Yeah. Um, Mark on that, there's a couple other methods that we didn't touch yet when it talks about when we want to talk about possibly letting an old field do its thing uh-huh. and that's running a disk through it yeah um a disk or fire but by scarifying the soil uh, a real common practice in a lot of um wildlife management plans is to do what's called strip disking where you just run a disk through the soil and disturb and and just basically free up some uh, seeds that are waiting there for an opportunity to grow and that could be in conjunction, right after a burn, excuse me, a burn down. Uh, what I meant to say, when you kill some things with herbicide, um, sometimes people will just run a disc through a green uh, fallow field. And and um, springtime, honestly, you know, there's a there's a difference between getting a better stand of forbs and and encouraging more grasses to grow by by when you disk it, either in the spring or in the fall. And I would say either is good, you know, and you're going to get, you're going to get results either way. It's more or less a timing thing for when, when you have the ability to get in there and not interfere with, uh, with other parts of your, your habitat plan or your hunting. You know, sometimes guys don't want to be in there running a tractor around, uh, spraying and, and disking when it's, when they want to be, um, leaving their sanctuaries alone for but for their deer to just to have peace. So, um, springtime is always a good time to be doing some projects like this, but, that spraying method about killing your sod um, right before it goes dormant, I know everybody wants to be deer hunting in November, but that could be well worth it for the following year.
1: Yeah, so, so doing the timed herbicide application, that's one way. You mentioned the strip disking. Um, something I've heard Dr. Craig Harper talk a lot about um, is, is not mowing. A lot of people right. like to mow their stuff. Can you explain why that is that, that folks, that mowing might not be the best option for resetting a field or working on a, a field?
2: Well, it, it's a lot of people. I think Craig's, Craig's um, everybody laughs when he talks about this during his speeches. And, and it's like, ah, it's time to go fire up a tractor just to go mow the field. And it'll be like, why do why do you want to do that? Why? Well, I could nothing else to do. I might as well mow. Um, we're just so ingrained to have our properties looking like, like yards and uh it's in direct competition with what a wildlife manager um should be doing there there is absolutely no reason to mow a field down when you're trying to do early successional growth um i i you're just you're basically resetting the plants you're cutting them off and having them start the life cycle all over again um, now that's that's one thing to be talking about then a food plot situation when you're creating new growth on clover or alfalfa that the high protein comes up but we're really kind of comparing apples and oranges here if you're trying to grow some structure with some so basically you know food and cover together where you've got a mixed field of grasses and forbs and weeds beneficial weeds don't break out the mower <laughs> let let them get some size to them because you you're you're, you're you're trying to create hand and glove cover and food at the same time. Yeah,
1: correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know it's it's easy when guys like us start talking about these things. It's really easy to get so focused on whitetails because obviously we love them so much. They they uh, take up so much of our mind space as we're, we're thinking about and planning all sure. these things around our deer hunting. Um, but new f- or old field growth or whatever it might be, building early successional habitat. That really benefits all sorts of other wildlife too. Like if we look at what we're doing on a property not as just creating a better deer hunting situation, but also managing the entire, you know, wildlife population and trying to benefit things at a at a higher level. Isn't this one of the best ways to do that?
2: One hundred percent. And I will say now's a good time to point out um if there's if we're at odds with anything with a multi-species beneficial planning, it, it may be Going for the densest, tallest, warm season grass planting you can find. And I, I'm guilty of that because some of well, my, my property number one number one goal for me is is thick, nasty, gnarly deer bedding habitat. Um yeah, it's true. Big blue, Indian and switch, the, the big three are bunch grasses, which means if you got down on your hands and knees and crawled through a field, you're gonna have a clump here, fifteen inches over here is a clump, twelve inches over there is a clump. So you have these little um, runways and tunnels that small game can utilize. But in, in all honesty, it's not quite as friendly, user-friendly to, say, quail. Um, now, turkeys will get in there around the edges and nest in that. Quail like a little bit more of a uh, – to, to to have the ability to fly up out of that. They, they tend to get a little bit too bogged down in the really tall grasses. So um, multiple species benefit probably the most from – an old field habitat that's managed correctly um and then reset accordingly when it's when it starts to mature it turns into saplings which turns into young you know young forests and on down the road on down the line but um warm season grasses can be tailored in their mixes and blends to be uh you throw in a, a a few short grasses in there as well you throw in some some forbs that have some seed component to them when they mature that are known for seeds that are beneficial like uh Partridge pea is an excellent one for for quail, and you you can if depending on what your objective is you can you can tailor a warm season grass planting to be sort of full spectrum and and be uh, a, the law of averages benefit everything, um, and I just I'd revert revert back to that explanation for me using the big three in a in a tight dense planting is is just strictly for nasty buck bedding habitat. Yeah.
1: And it definitely seems like there's a place there's a time and place for everything right and um exactly. and and kind of speaking back to the deer side of things though and and this probably benefits a lot of other things too, but when we're talking cover we've we've spent a lot of time not talking about fields, either converting a field an old crop field into early successional habitat or managing a field that's already there um, What about the other big section of your property? And a big section of some of the places I've looked at personally that are currently mature timber, big timber. Right. Um, I know from uh, a video I watched of yours from a handful of years ago. Back to this uh, this new property that you picked up, the adjacent farm. That uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe you looked at. Timber harvest on that property as a way to help supplement some of your, you know, help supplement income and and help pay for some of that. Maybe, Um, can you talk a little bit about how we should be thinking about, you know, finding the right way of using some kind of timber harvest or management to a benefit wildlife and to b maybe help with the economics of the whole deal?
2: Absolutely. In timber, there's really only a couple, three, you know, you can count them on one hand. Let's put it that way. Practices that. Uh, ultimately are going to be management strategies that that you can and, and they all they all revolve around cutting or or selectively reducing competitive species but i like to think of the easiest way that you can get the most improvement on your property and it won't cost you anything as a matter of fact it puts money in your pocket is a selective timber harvest but um i throw the caution flag out and I'm, I, Mark, you probably remember me saying that back then is that th- there are some really good folks out there in the timber industry. It's a very competitive industry. So there's in just about in anything you do, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be some characters of some questionable quality, you know? So, mm-hmm. and, and and not only what I mean by that is what they would pay you for their for your commodity, but also in the job that they will do. And by that, I mean, are they going to damage a lot of other trees in the process? Or are they gonna come in when it's completely wet and rut up your property and uh, leave you with a, a nightmare mess? So I advise doing, if you don't personally know a good reputable timber buyer in your area, then, then I would certainly rec- recommend contacting a private lands forester. And what they would do is come out and they would walk with you and they would talk with you about your objectives for your property And, uh, like me, I've got a friend of mine that's a timber buyer and I've got several friends that are forestry consultants. And after years of doing this, I feel comfortable having conversations, both directions with these guys. I tell my forester, I want to take every Oak tree on this Ridge. That's 20 inches or larger. And, um, you know, leave, leave, um, anything that, uh, 18 and 19 and down for the next five years. Um, and then. I'm also, in between those harvests, I'm doing timber stand improvement work, which means I'm hinge cutting on my place. It's beech trees. We, uh, You might have seen a video that we did for land Beat on whitetail properties and also for the Management Advantage, mm-hmm. a couple episodes based on, on, on hinge cutting. But with what you have to work with, everybody's got a different composition. Mine happened to be a absolute surplus of young coming in um, beech trees from one inch in diameter up to, you know, 12 inches and creating sunlight to the floor and and laying over trees to create additional structure for cover for bedding. Um, but where I'm going with this is a, a good, um, managed timber inventory harvest can result in the opening of your canopy, some dollars in your pocket, new growth for the next 15 to 20 years that will be friendly and beneficial to your wildlife. And um, the ability to go in and manage in, you know around and uh, in between those harvests to, to create an, an ongoing perpetual situation um, I, so back, back to the back to the uh, uh, consultant he will mark the trees for you and basically give you an estimate of value based on the size which relates to total board feet and there's a market value for each particular species based on the current conditions. And then it's pretty simple math to do number of board feet times the dollars per board foot, uh, to give you an estimate. And he can even put the, put the property out for bid to several uh, timber harvesters and, um, see who bids on it. And he can also say, Hey, this guy has always done a good job for me, or you might watch this guy a little bit close, you know, so you're going to get some inside scoop there, but you're basically going to have, a supervisor that's working on behalf of you to take care of you to make sure that things are being done. Number one, financially the right way you're going to be compensated the market value of what, what they might take, but also um, following along to make sure they, the cleanup's done properly. The roads are uh, a lot of times a timber buyer will, they'll do a basic cleanup job where they'll backtrack their roads and make them nice and smooth. And they'll put water bars are in which are little dams that divert water off your trail And things like that but if you need some culverts put in or if you want a a road cut from this you know this hill down into this valley to connect to that creek crossing you know they'll say okay we'll we'll just uh i'll I'll just deduct that out of a little bit of a couple trees you know and you can barter that out with a a guy if he's there doing a cleanup job with a nice dozer anyway so um that's number one is a timber harvest whether you do it managing it through yourself or through a consultant is uh is an easy way to get timberland in shape and productive for deer habitat and woodland species like white, t- excuse me, like wild turkeys. And, and, uh, in some of our States where declining habitat is causing the rough grouse to disappear, rough grouse really rely heavily on that early, early successional timber growth. And they're disappearing from the landscape because we're not doing enough harvesting in many areas of the, of our States. Yeah. But, um,
1: so, so let me jump in really quick here, Tom, and ask you, um, would I be correct in assuming that, that right? there's going to be some foresters, some consulting foresters who are going to be kind of savvy to what wildlife folks are interested in like us? When we're thinking about how to do this from a, a deer hunting perspective, then there's going to be some consulting foresters that probably are just looking to maximize profit. And it's probably important to pick the right one. Is that question number one? Is that true?
2: Very true. Very true. Okay. A good forester will ask you, what is your – priority or what are your priorities in order and i always tell number one is deer habitat or wildlife habitat number two is timber value perpetual timber value in other words i want to make sure i've got marketable trees for the future number three is this aesthetics i really mm. have gotten over long ago the shock and all of what a what a woodland looks like the week after the foresters you know the, the cutters leave I know there's right. going to be tops laying everywhere. I understand that They're going to have, you're going to have some snapped-off tops here and there. So you've, just got to, you've got to be able to understand and accept that. But you also need to have a job that's done correctly and your trees kept safe around those trees that were harvested and not injured. And in my opinion, the road's done properly and groomed out well so that you're left with a good piece that you can manage going forward. Yeah.
0: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition For all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater.
1: Now, I always hear about timber harvests and doing some management like this when it comes to hardwoods. Is there any opportunity with softwoods? So you got to stand of pine trees or something. Is there ever going to be a scenario where you can find someone who, where you can get money out of that too, or are these softwoods just not worth enough um, to make
2: the that work make sense? To our Southern friends, absolutely. <laughs> if you're down below the Mason-Dixon line and uh, really strong in Alabama and uh, Georgia, uh, the Carolinas, timber production down there means, means pine plantations and um so the the market the the mills are set up to feed the market down there for pulpwood and paper and and lumber that 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 relies on that particular uh type of wood up here in the midwest it's much much tougher tougher to find that i won't say that i've not seen buyers that have found a market for softwoods and i've seen some of my friends and customers that have sold some but it's it's it just the the whole thing about supply and demand it's a completely different realm. We're in a different universe from those guys down there. Um, it is possible, but it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count on it. Um, if, if you find a way to sell some pines up here, um, I, I would consider yourself pretty lucky.
1: Okay. That's good to know. Definitely good to know. Um, you mentioned hinge cutting. That's something you – know, we've talked to a lot of people about hinge cutting. It's a very popular method for improving cover, for managing some degree of timber. And I think probably the thing about it is it's the most accessible, right? Anyone can go yeah. out there with the proper equipment, chainsaw and proper safety equipment, and, and start making some changes that can result in pretty quick you know, deer behavior changes too. Exactly, um, yeah. We won't. I don't think it's worth going through the basics of what hinge cutting is, since I think most people know about that now. But is there anything, anything that you've seen as far as popular, best popular? What am I trying to say? Are there any types of advice out there when it comes to hinge cutting that you've seen that you want to say, "Oh, oh no, please don't do that"? Like, are there any kind of myths yeah. you need to fix, or, or or just a couple next level things we should touch on on that topic?
2: Yeah, I would say. Um, I- just for example, being around some, some professionals in, in the forest forestry industry, and hearing how they have sort of a, uh, um, it, I guess a pet peeve with with hinge cutting because, frankly, they've seen they've they've seen it run amok and, and possibly way overdone incorrectly, and and um, you know these guys are are trying to tell you there's better ways to manage for timber. Um, but here we are as wildlife guys trying to manage our temper for wildlife too. So I, I would say cautionary is just to make sure you can identify your tree species. That's number one. Um, I I don't think I've put a chainsaw on one single white oak or red oak tree while hinge cutting on my property. 99.9% of it has been beech. And again, I'm that's specific to me. I'm not saying another guy that has... 100 percent all oak timber on his property isn't going to find it fine to eliminate and hinge over a bunch of three and five inch white oaks that would you know that would horrify a forester in some situations but um the uh the, the i think it's very very important understand your tree species and which are mass producing which are wildlife friendly and and have timber value luckily for us the highest value t- lumber um in our woodlands here in the midwest also, our acorn-producing acorn trees, for the most part, red oak, white oak. White oak is the king right now, probably always will be in the oaks. But also, um, you have you have hickory, walnut. Yeah, you could say deer won't utilize um, the walnut, but it is a it is a nut-producing tree and it is a highly valuable wood. I mean, it's it's it probably reign, reigns supreme over even the white oak for the, the right the right walnut tree as far as market value, board foot value and then um the probably the one that uh that's not a mass producer here in the midwest is the sugar maple um but it's a valuable hardwood it, it it's a good furniture wood so making sure you can identify the trees that have potentially massed and market value and avoid cutting them unless it's absolutely necessary and is it one could argue is it necessary <laughs> um but if you're if you're trying to free up um a 16 inch oak with 25 small oaks underneath it yeah i might I could see where you might want to hinge cut some of those, but um, a lot of foresters bristle at that because they're, they've just seen guys that have went in willy nilly with a chainsaw and done more damage than good. Um, but then again, it's all, it's all subjective. Is is it important to that guy that, that he's cutting his oak trees? Maybe he did it on purpose and doesn't care, but he is sort of eliminating some future, um, marketable timber.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so speaking of cutting timber, um, when you bought that first fifty-seven acre piece, if I if I heard right, it sounds like it was mostly mostly timber, and to put food in originally, you had to kind of carve out some spots in the timber. Is that right?
2: That's correct. Yeah, I remember. Okay. Um, I, I created a little food plot that was once a logging deck in the timber. You know what I'm talking about, where. They they stage up. It's where they they stack all the logs and they get loaded yep. on the trucks and off the hill they go. So this yep. this little piece was probably a quarter of an acre. I and mean, you know not a small not a, not a big field by any stretch of the imagination. But it was up on a nice flat ridge top. And I had a tractor and I had a bush hog and I had a grater box. This was back way back before the Ferminator was ever a thought in my mind. So, um, but I went up there with a chainsaw and a grater box with a root. Uh, I mean uh, with a scarifier teeth and and cut and pushed saplings out of the way and ran the box through the soil, ripping up all the roots I could and worked around some of the. At that time, there really weren't any big stumps, but maybe this a stump the size of a softball that my tractor, I, I'd worked around those, but uh, basically created that first clearing that way. And that was our food plot on the property for a long, long time. And then when we did this harvest in 2005, the first big timber harvest, um, I worked with my cutter and I, I flagged out those areas and I said, I would like you to take every tree inside of these, you know, I, I you can put a paint spot on the trees or a, a ribbon or flags or whatever you want to do. And I said, I want everything that you can possibly take. And if, if if you make a penny off of it and you're willing to take it off the hill, take it. And even if you don't pay me a, you know, a dime for it. Mm-hmm. And of course, there was some marketable trees in there, but there was a lot of trees that they just took because they, yeah, it's a free tree. They're going to take it. It just was reducing my my um, labor in the end of what I was going to have to clear. So we created from that, that oversizing, we created a, um, one field by our camp that was um, basically about f- a, half an acre, four tenths. And then another one we call the south plot. It's now eight tenths of an acre. That was an expansion of our little tiny, quarter acre. And then we created a two acre field in the timber that was all at one time, originally all forest. And, uh, that, that was a cool, really major, major transition.
1: Yeah. So, so can you help me understand how you chose these spots?
2: Um, sure. Actually it it was fairly easy because they were probably the fattest, fattest, they were the flattest areas on the ridges that had multiple fingers um dumping into like a a a bench or a flat ridge top so um and it was easy for access for the timber guys they as as they were coming through they they basically drove right along these areas and uh I knew that from hunting too that they were flat and offered some converging trail areas and and it just it made sense that way also they weren't against the property lines they were well there was a nice buffer between those plot locations and any surrounding property lines. So there, you know, no, no eyes could see into those areas and, and run the risk of having somebody sitting on them and shooting into them, but, um, sort of default that way. I mean, there, there are more criteria to look at moisture, sunlight, exposure, access in and out with equipment. Um, there's other things to consider, but those were the ones for me.
1: So then what was the process after you had the, the loggers came in, they took out all those trees, uh, where did you go from there in this scenario?
2: Yeah, it was a it was like a tornado went through there. I've got pictures of it early on when it when they just finished and it, it, it was horrible. Um, but it, it, you know, you expected it to look devastating. Um, I I was still landscape contracting at that time, so I had a I had a skid loader, and we did buy a grapple bucket for it. And the, and we what we did is we would go out on Saturdays and Sundays on the weekend, and use the skid loader and take every treetop and just we kept feeding a fire we we built a giant fire in the middle of it and we just started burning tops and burning tops and dragging um, surrounding tops that we had easy access to right there cutting down the remaining trees that the guys didn't take and there were there were a lot and you know maybe stuck those off to the side put the logs off to the side as a possible firewood logs you know for the camp Um, but after all the tops were burned and you have a field left over of ash in the middle and stumps about every 10 feet apart. (laughs) And that's where the real fun began. And I say that tongue in cheek, we, um, we rented a stump grinder, a kind that attaches to the three point on a tractor. And it had, um, a little station window where you could step off next to it. It was PTO driven off the tractor and it had a little, um, basically like a joystick and some buttons and you could, the, the stump grinder would move in and out and left and right and up and down, of course. And we ground stumps. Um, we kept that thing for, I don't know, two weeks straight and ground stumps till we we were seeing them in our sleep. Um, wow. and, and <laughs> I'm talking hundreds like and hundreds of stumps. That was the easy, I guess you would say the poor man's way. Um, uh, another way to do it had I had, the, the finances or the connections was to leave the stumps a little bit higher and have somebody come in with the dozer and mm-hmm. push them all out of the ground. But then again, I'm, I'm dealing with giant root balls, you know, and what do you do with that? Um, then you're, right. you're piling up the root balls somewhere and creating, um, so the way that we did it, we ended up with a beautiful field with no litter around it, no piles, no nothing and uh good, good soil on top of the, we, we ground the stumps down six to eight inches below the surface. And then I took my skid loader when done and just pushed soil around and fill all the little low spots in and create a nice level field. Uh,
1: so, so when you're carving in a food plot like this inside timber, something I've never really thought about is how much of a buffer area, like uh, what am I trying to say here? Let's say I had the goal of having a half acre food plot. Would it be fair to say that carving out exactly a half acre of space is not what you want to do because some amount of that will be so shaded out that it's not actually going to grow. And that if you, if you want a half acre food plot, you might actually want to carve out, you know, six tenths of an acre or seven tenths of an acre to allow for a, a shaded buffer. Does any of that something you ever think about or am I overthinking it?
2: No, no, you're not overthinking it. Uh, And we mentioned it briefly a little earlier that you definitely have to look at the direction of the sun and the way the field orients to relationship to how the sun rises and sets. And um, you may have aspirations to have a particular size, but but just real, real world conditions may not allow you to do that. Um, now, the other thing you can do is create the opening that you can, no matter how it's, you know, let's face it, some guys may have a 20 acre woods and they've got one little flat spot in there, then it's, let's say, half an acre and it is what it is you don't have any other options because it's hillsides and and deep gullies and ravines. So you, you, you work with what you've got unless you have the ability to be selective based on conditions and watch how the sun you, you're going to need four hours minimum of direct sunlight a day to grow a good sustainable uh, forage of any kind. I mean, yeah, you can grow plants less than that, but that's what you're going to need to have a good viable Um, food source that's that's storing energy and and providing for your deer so backing up a step if you if you work with what you've got and it's not perfectly oriented the way that you want um, some other things you can do is trim overhanging branches along the outside edges all the way around to 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 maximize your you know uh, area of impact it's not a bad thing to have some shade early in the morning and late in the afternoon. The clovers absolutely love that. They like a little bit of break from the direct heat in July and August here. Um, and, and as the moisture in the ground starts to dissipate from the direct sun, you'll see your, your best forages are growing in that partial shade. But just thinking outside of the box in general terms, looking at an um, a east and west orientation to get... Um, excuse me, north and south orientation so that when the sun rises east to west, it's basically hitting the field all at the same time, you know, and you're getting ample sunlight coverage across the entirety as it as it peaks in the sky and goes down the other way. So thinking about that in terms of um, accessibility, sunlight, how can I get equipment back there, and then choosing your forages to match the soil and the sun. Ridge top plantings, I've grown clovers in them just because I – um, I, th- I think my soil does is it has a lot of loam and it holds a lot of moisture, but as a general rule of thumb, bottom land soils at the base of the hills, are going to grow a better clover field for you. And the tops might be areas where you would consider plants that are a little b- more drought tolerant or, or a little more tolerant to heat and adverse conditions. And a chicory is one of those, but you can certainly grow your, your fall winter blends of cereal grains and brassicas on those tops as well um soybeans and corn in the timber is possible uh soybeans need well depending on deer density they can be a nightmare <laughs> but um soybeans will do well in full sun with some fairly dry soils as as, as, as well like that particular two acre field that i just described i've grown everything in that um from different clovers to roundup ready alfalfa the eagle and round a real world uh, soybean forage soybeans i've planted corn in there um, you name it, I've had it in there.
1: On the shade issue, this is something I've never really thought too much about, but this is important, I'm imagining. Is there, is this an issue that's so important that you should think about the shape of your food plot too, to maximize sunlight? So, by that I mean, what you, you mentioned that example of orienting your food plot to run north to south, so that it gets as much possible sunlight during those times. Would it also be beneficial to have a more of a square-shaped food plot in a situation like this that, that has more unshaded uh, surface area versus a long, skinny food plot that might be in shade for a longer period of time. Uh, does something like that make sense at all?
2: It does. Um, I am a big fan, though, of irregularity. Even when I did my all my landscape designs and even when I'm doing a, a customer's habitat design, I'm a big fan of curves and irregular shapes. I just think it lends to itself to a more naturally pleasing look. Um, I also like the fact that a deer popping out at one end of the field has to make an effort to see at the other end of the field. That could that could lend well to a hunting strategy. I would say unless it's a really extreme case, um, I would just, as long as your general directions are oriented north and south, and you're going to have some coves or little dips and valleys, or not valleys, but dips and curves off to the side. The, the majority of the field's going to do great. You may have some areas that struggle a little bit. As I said, sometimes those fields, those areas that struggle a little bit for direct sunlight early on, will will be the best areas later on in the summer because they're they've, they've retained more moisture. So I wouldn't right. let I wouldn't lose too much sleep over that. Um, there's nothing wrong with square if that's the area you've got to work with. By all means, and it's a little bit easier with equipment turning around and running straight lines and all that. But I, I'm a fan of ir- irregular and odd shapes and pinch points and ins and outs and, you know, that kind of thing, just just from the design aspect of it and the hunting, the interest that it creates.
1: Yeah, de- there definitely do seem to be benefits to having slightly more strategic shapes to those food plots, as you mentioned, to encourage travel throughout to, to also, I think, not only does a, a regular food plot shape lend itself to some of the movement things you said, but probably gives deer a little bit greater sense of comfort inside as well right so they're not just looking at a big wide open space but they've got edges that that change around them they've got some sections where they feel like they're a little bit more concealed i gotta imagine that helps too
2: that's a great way to say it concealment's important to them and these these woodland interior plots are just that's the whole purpose of them um well not the that's one of the biggest benefits i should say of them is just the fact Mm -hmm. that overall the thing is enclosed and, and surrounded by good heavy escape cover and so just by by natural inc- inclination they feel good about it but absolutely if you can have um, a back cove to a field that has a little bit of wine to it, the deer coming out that back cove feel immediately uh, immediately comfortable and as they they uh, venture out a little bit farther into the field they uh, they can look on around the bend and see what's going on out there and and uh, and, and join the party uh, so to speak but i think it's really neat to watch um, so we've killed some mature bucks that will pop out in one part of the field and work a scrape line all the way around the perimeter, and they've got to check the, the whole peripheral, and we'll end up getting a shot because of the fact of the way it was shaped. You know, they've got to see what's what's going on around the bend.
1: That's pretty cool. Um, something that just popped in my mind as I'm thinking through this specific scenario of this shaded timber food plot: would it ever make sense to girdle trees around the outside around the border so that you are essentially maybe there's a bunch of trees with a really big canopy that are on Mm -hmm. the outside that would be shading your food plot. For those that aren't familiar, girdling is a way I've never, I've actually not done it personally, but I've seen that you you make a cut around the tree and then apply an herbicide and that kills that tree. Um, Is that a kind of easy way to give you like a shade border or a removing shade around the border? Is that something you've ever thought about?
2: It, It is a way to do that for sure. But I would caution you if it's a marketable tree, um, I would have sold it and gotten it out of there already anyway. But if that's, yeah, if it's just a way that you're, you know, that the, your approach and you're coming in and you've got the, the little spot that you can clear and open and, and, it, and it doesn't involve a tim- timber harvest. First of all, definitely Mark, let's, let's identify it. If it's a beautiful white oak tree, we're not, we don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, or, or, or any of the others down that list of desirable marketable species. But um, yeah, let's say it's a, let's just say it's a hackberry or, or, or a, a beach or an Aspen or something like that, that has little to no value for us whatsoever, either through, um, and I know people are going to argue and say beech trees pr- produce a nut. They, they absolutely do. But in my, in my property, um, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of beach and they're directly competing because they're shade tolerant and my oaks are not. So, um, <clears throat> you just deal with what you're working with. In my case, I, I have no, issue with removing as many beaches I can because I never will be able to remove them all and I would much rather have a, a an oak tree of one sort of fashion growing there instead of a beech tree but um back to the point the only downside that I could see to what you recommended or mentioned there is that eventually that tree is going to fall um large limbs are going to break off it over, over time and, uh, it, and and a big wind is going to push it over someday so consider that for number one Are you going to be prepared to deal with it when it falls and have to cut Mm -hmm. it up and move it out of your plot? But number two, please be careful about hunting around those things too. I've I've seen uh, ringed or or girdled trees in a windstorm um, nearby me and I've climbed down just because I felt like, you know, that's certainly not a good scenario there, that anything could happen.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. (laughs) Wouldn't want to be in that scenario. A little scary. Um, Yeah, yeah, that would be. Um. I don't think we need to go into the basics of of food plots um we've talked a lot about cover we've talked a lot about some of the specific or some specific things about how to position food plots and things like that in the timber. but as far as like what to plant, you know everyone wants to know like what's your favorite thing to plant or what should I plant in my food plot or should I do this clover or this soybean or or this oat or whatever I, I don't yeah. know if there's necessarily value to saying, like, here's the best blend to buy. But what I am always interested in and what I think probably the better question is for someone to be thinking about when they have a food plot that they're going to try planning for the first time or that they want to experiment with, it's probably just just how do you go about making that decision? Like, what are the right questions to ask as an individual to get to the right answer as far as what to plan? Um, So could you walk us through, Tom? The things that you are thinking about in your mind when you have an opening and you're going to plant a food plot. What are all the questions you're asking to yourself to come to the final answer of what should be planted here?
2: Sure, the underlying probably first question would be: Is this going to be a? Am I considering this a nutritional feeding plot, or is this a spot that I want to just? have maximum attraction and I want to be able to hunt the edges of this when the wind allows me to do that. They, they can, they can provide both. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is, are you looking at a an at annual situation that you're going to plant in late summer, early fall, where that plant is just starting to kick in and do maximum growth and, and providing real palatable, soft, tender, young nutritional plants um, as opposed to, planting something either the spring before or even the fall before that, um, is a perennial plant that you're going to have to maintain throughout the year, but it's also going to be providing year round or close to year round as much as possible during the growing season nutrition, um, for, for a thriving deer herd. So you can pretty much simply, um, carve it into two big groups right off the bat. A lot of guys don't really care about the other. They just want to plant something to hunt. And, um, you know, that, that's that's fine. Everybody's got their own objective. Us crazy land managers that can't get enough of it are planting um, different food sources, both warm and cool season plants and also perennials in some fashion or form in relationship to one another to always have the highest possible nutrition on our farm or on our property to keep our deer, deer number one, to keep them there, but also healthy and growing and maximized. So I would say... Uh, equipment's probably a second choice or a second f- factor. If, if you're just going to be doing some light, maybe even hand tools, it, it can certainly, um, make things, uh, um, a little bit easier to decide. You may not want to spend $65 a ba- for an acre bag of, of perennial clover. Um, when, when, um, you know, all you got to work with is a rake and a, in a leaf blower, um, so if you've got big equipment and or or any any type of equipment to get the job done, then then you can maybe think about something a little bit more, um, you know, full term and more more of a perennial. I really do believe that old adage or the old saying, that, you know, the QDMA teaches this in the Deer Steward programs. Two to five percent of your property should be dedicated, three to five percent better of your total acreage in food. And if you can split that three to 5% up into two or three types of food, you're, you're even that f- much farther along and, and hedging your bets as far as spreading out the, the value and attraction of your food. So l- let me just give you a classic example. I've got um, uh, soybeans, forward soybeans in a field in the bottom and I, up at the top, I've got a, um, a roundup ready alfalfa field that's in one plot. And I also then will go into and interseed greens and grains into it in mid-August with a machine. And so now I've got, I've got uh, winter wheat and some brassicas that are coming up in that Roundup Ready plot. Because as the alfalfa starts to wane at the end of the growing season and say the, f- the final cold freeze shuts it down, those other plants are now available there. Um, mm-hmm. The soybeans, of course, are a, a highly attractive forage through the summer. But then again, the deer turn back to him again when the beans dry off and it gets cold. If, if you're not using a forage type soybean, when the leaves start to yellow off here in the Midwest, usually the last week of August into the first two weeks of September, about the time antlers are drying down and velvet starts to peel, you can walk the soybean rows and, and broadcast greens and grains. When I say that, I'm just kind of covering a broad spectrum of plants um, into the bean rows and, and double up that food plot and make it a, uh, an extended attractive field. So now you've got attractive lush greens growing in and you've got those standing soybean pods that they're going to be in there hammering when the weather gets cold. Um, and then another field may be directly just nothing but a, f- I've the soil, I've, I've limed and fertilized it. And I've planted a fall blend of say annual clovers um, with a particular uh, one or two wheat or oat species that I find useful that that work in conjunction with one another, um, and, and of course Whitetail Institute is our sponsor with Whitetail Properties, so I certainly look look at their broad spectrum available plants, and there's there's a, a plant and a mix or a blend to s- suit any situation um, that we've talked about, uh, other than the, the crop type grains.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of success with their, uh, with their seed as well. I've used, uh, the kind of combination that's worked for the, the couple small plots that I'm able to plant on a property that I've got permission on. I have been doing, um, a mix of winter greens and then their oats and I've done strips of that, um, to allow me to properly time when those things get planted, um, but, but yeah, I, I love your your approach to having a diversity of food laid out in kind of a strategic way so there's something for deer at all times of year. And then I got to believe that by doing that, you're able to pattern deer movement in certain places
2: based off of that most palatable food source, right? Absolutely. And you'll see the change. You'll see deer transition from one, and, and even in a field when you have a, um, just say you have a blend of four or five different species out there you'll see deer selectively constantly moving and they may be selecting this particular clover for this three or four days this week and then as that plant begins to mature and another one's coming on and it's at its highest palatable protein level they're selecting that they're amazing creatures they know exactly what's best for them and they can select that out so um yeah it changes through the season just like the, the minute that the first soybean leaves start to yellow, they become dried out. They're no longer attractive, The deer are going to switch from soybeans and go to a green grain, a green um, uh, uh, cereal grain or a clover or a, uh, or, or a young brassica plants. Uh, so yeah. it's, they, they, they certainly are very selective and, and the word is browsers. You know, they, they, they browse and they, uh, people say graze, they, they, they browse their design. Their mouths are designed to clip and, uh, twigs and and shoots and the ends of weeds and everything too, but they they've got that soft palate and and that uh, those lower teeth, but they're out there clipping off uh, fresh forage and they they know what's good for them, so they're purposely selecting that out.
1: Yeah, it's kind of amazing that they whatever whatever mechanism it is that allows them to select, they they are able to select the very most nutritious thing at just the right time of year for that specific. Plant matter um, to to benefit them most, which is kind of amazing. I wish that I had that kind of selectivity, so I knew not to keep eating the Wendy's hamburgers all the time.
2: <laughs> well, I think where they're at an advantage is they can probably tell through taste. That's my that's my uh, my gut instinct tells me that they're able to taste, um, and, it, and it has a, a certain appeal when it's just at the highest peak. Whereas yes. the stuff that tastes good
1: good for us is not always the best. <laughs> not so good for you, yeah. We need to figure out some way to flip that around. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so Tom, I feel like I, uh, we're going to get going really long here if I'm not careful to, to rein us in because we've, we've covered a lot of interesting stuff. I'm really enjoying this, but there's a lot more I want to talk about. Um, sure. So I'm going to force myself to stop so that we don't keep you all night and um, just ask you one final question. Yes, sir. Which is, you know, your your work with whitetail properties and your work with the management advantage and all the different things you've done um, has put you in contact, I got to believe, with some of the most knowledgeable, um, experienced deer hunters and managers of land and wildlife, some of the very best probably in the entire country. Um, When you look at that top tier, those very best folks who really know how to manage wildlife and habitat and do it to like that next level. What, what stands out to you about those people? Cause I got to believe there's a lot of us, people like me and other people who have, who've dabbled with it, who've had a small property maybe, or maybe they've got a, a decent sized chunk and they've been working on it for the years, but they're trying to find out like, how do I take things to the next step? How do I, how do I find excellence? How how do you define excellence or what different traits when you look at the very best of the best out there stand out to you that would be helpful for us to, to
2: keep in mind? I think it's an insatiable appetite and desire to always want to learn more. And of course you've got to have that absolute just crazy passion for deer. Just <laughs> we all love white-tailed deer. And you know that that's obviously a common thread. And we all love antlers. We love holding big antlers. Um it, it's everybody you know, there, there's going to be the criticism where you guys are just about trophies. No, no, I'm not. Um, we, we, we love mature deer. I don't care what it scores. We love that. That's, that's, that's what drives my daughters and I is uh, selecting that the best oldest mature buck we can grow on our property. Um, but I, I getting back to the, the guy that has it, um, the people that I respect in the industry are, are just insatiably hungry and wanting to learn more. And I think it's, it's, you gotta you gotta give a guy do due, do due, um, credit for putting in time in the trenches. You know the the, the older guys uh, and I guess and I, I don't look at myself as a pro or as a as a someone to um, I don't I'm just I'm humbled that you called and asked me to talk today. I I never look at myself as in comparison or in the same ballpark as any of the guys that I'm that I look up to. But I I just I just think that there is that there's something to be said about somebody that's been around the block many times and has done it and seeing what works and what doesn't, and can help guys that are just getting started and way shorten their learning curve by, hey, don't do that. I did that five years ago, and it was a disaster. Here's the better way, you know. And and if you can keep guys um, from wasting time and wasting money and wasting, you know, let's face it, you do something wrong one deer season or one food plot season, you may be stuck till – uh, a year, 12 months from then to be able to rectify it and do it over again. So, yeah. um, always get your hands on, man, when I was younger, it was reading, you know, I read, 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 read. And every article I, I got, I could get my hands on quality whitetails magazine and, and, and reading from the best and obviously doing it and seeing what worked and making a mental note, not to do that or true. Let's do this differently. Uh, keeping, keeping good records. Don't be afraid to take advice from others don't be so um you know high-minded that that there's not a, a better way or somebody that can help you uh, understand a, a slight twist or turn that could make your results better but um yeah just be constantly hungry to want to to want to learn more and uh you, you just immerse yourself in it
1: yeah that's great great advice and uh I think without a doubt, and I think anyone who's heard this conversation would certainly put you in the same category as anyone else out there. Who's, who's sharing some really, really helpful advice as far as these things I've, I've found this really enjoyable. So, so thank thank you you. for that, Tom. And, um, for folks that want to get in touch with you about a a property or who want to learn about what you're doing or who want to see your, your filmed hunts or anything like that. Um, where can people go online or get in touch with you?
2: Sure. Um, Well, you can certainly just go to whitetailproperties.com and click on the state of Indiana, and my name will be there, Tom James, or you can email me at tom.james at whitetailproperties.com. You can certainly also go if you want to see what we've been doing as far as some habitat work. The Land Beat series by Whitetail Properties, I've been fortunate enough to be asked to be involved with uh, the digital program Land Beat, which Whitetail Properties is is excited to be ramping up to many more episodes a year and we're, we're we're doing and filming exactly the stuff that we're talking about today mark which is awesome you know all land related and deer habitat management related stuff um it'll be short interesting segments and my and several other guys on the whitetail staff are are going to be involved in that and then the management my buddies casey shootman chuck sykes howard o'neill um Eric Long, there's several guys that it's, that's in that group that have been long involved in that. And we contribute as we can uh, current relative topics to what we're doing on our properties. We're trying to film and show that work being done and the results of that being done. So folks can go back through the archives of that program either on the website or on the YouTube channel and search up a topic and you'll see us doing, doing it somewhere Uh, in the past. And and, then we, we a lot of times like to include hunts that, that show the result of that hard work that we've put into it. Excellent.
1: Well, I uh, I've, I've watched the videos. I've, I've seen the land beat things you're doing. I've been kind of privy to to some of these different things you're up to and and everything seems pretty darn excellent, Tom. You've been helping a lot of folks out and I think you did here today too. So, so thank you for that. Thank you very much for saying that. Yeah. And good luck uh, with the upcoming spring and summer work on on your properties.
2: Yeah. I've got that big project right around the corner and I'm more excited about that than anything I have been in a very long time.
1: It sounds like it's going to be a good one. (laughs) Yes, sir. (laughs) All right, Tom, let's talk again soon. Thanks, Mark. And that is going to be a wrap. So If you'd like more information about anything we talked about, you know, as Tom mentioned, you can find his information over at whitetailproperties.com. Please participate in Shed Rally this coming weekend. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll be out there looking for antlers. Make sure you wear your Wired Hunt hats and shirts so you can be included in the giveaway. And uh, otherwise, I just want to wish you guys luck. Good luck out there looking for antlers. Have a great time. And until next
0: time, stay wired to hunt.